and unsurpassed, penetrating and perfect dharma is rarely met with even in a hundred thousand million kalpas, having it to see and listen to, to remember and accept, I vow to taste the truth of the Tathagata's words. Good evening and welcome, welcome back. I have in mind this evening to continue um, these four methods of guidance that we also name as the four ways bodhisattvas embrace living beings. And you might remember that the two we have covered so far, the first one was giving. And Dogen expresses this as non-greed. Just that phrase would be enough to study for a year. <laughs> How exactly is giving the same as non-greed? As we have looked at it, it has something to do with um, an inclusive view that includes, um, that broadens our own perhaps narrow perspective that might be a little bit self-absorbed, uh, an inclusive view to be able to ask, so what exactly is needed here? Not based on what I want to give actually, but what is needed. And um, that can take the form of offering material goods or material help, energy or emotional companionship, but primarily it takes the form of non-judgmental attention and then responding to the circumstances as they are. This is what Dogen calls non-greed. You might remember that the second of these four ways we embrace living beings is in kind speech and the way Dogen expresses this is, at least at first, refrain from being rude. That's helpful coaching. <laughs> but as we know, it, it goes on to include um, careful listening. This is a lot like non-greed, isn't it? Because careful listening necessarily includes the point of view of another or many others. And then one of the core aspects of kind speech is to communicate clearly without judgment. And that latter phrase, without judgment, is the keystone, I would say, to kind speech. In other places it's expressed as uh, asking ourselves three questions before we speak or while we're speaking. Is it true? Is it helpful? So that also means, you know, is it helpful to this person in this place? Kind of like what is needed here and respond appropriately, right? So is it true? Is it helpful? 
And then the third question, is it timely? When I'm speaking, I might have something very important that needs to be communicated, but I have to ask, is this the right time to be saying such a thing? So those are the first two, and this evening I thought I would address directly the third one called Beneficial Action. And um, I want to place it squarely in the context of this week. I'm seeing on a, a number of listservs in which I participate that Friday of this week, May 20th, is World Meditation Day. Did you know that? I didn't know that. <laughs> So all over the world, I don't know who the organizing group is, but all over the world, apparently, today, uh, Friday will be recognized as World Meditation Day. And of course, if you think about that, all over the world, in the various places in which we are actually right now located, that means that throughout the day, somewhere in the world, people are meditating aware that other people in the world are meditating, kind of as the sun moves, uh, the meditation moves. So placing today's uh, discussion of beneficial action squarely in this week of world meditation. And I particularly want to pick up a thread from Patrick from last week that we are turning the Dharma wheel expand this as well to include the further and the Dharma wheel is also turning itself. So what is it that's happening when we're meditating? What is it that's happening when we turn the Dharma wheel? You know we have the three facets of practice I guess we would call them the, the triple treasure that's actually one treasure but three facets of the same jewel we have seated meditation, we have study, and we have community, of course. So study is, you know, this is sitting together and discussing the Dharma as an example of study. But when we have service in the, in the morning or in the evening, reciting any one of the ancient teachings, that also is study. Reading on our own, that is study examining our lives in relationship to the Dharma, that study. So these three aspects permeate our lives when practice becomes the center of our life. And when we're studying, part of at least part of what we're studying is our own responses to the world. Studying the self, uh, not as self-improvement really, but studying the self in order to forget the self. And in this way, merging, as Dogen says it, merging with the myriad things. In that exact process, body and mind of self and other drop away. So part of what we're doing is tending to the our inner landscape, our inner ecology, so that we can turn fully to meet the so-called external uh, ecology or reality. 
part of what we're doing is learning how to not other. I'm making a verb out of to stop othering. So our beneficial action in the world relies upon this effort. I think it's fair to say that Buddhism emphasizes some kind of vigorous, um, what will I call it, self-restraint maybe. Uh, for example, withholding, so in, in order to not be rude, for example, that's vigorous and rigorous. So in our meditation practice, we are also gaining some awareness of uh, the nature of things, including the nature of our minds and conditions in which we live. But importantly, I would say in Mahayana schools, it's not enough to have an insight into the nature of things or the nature of our minds. We're also required to express this insight in daily life. And we're required to express this insight in daily life for the benefit of others. So when we're practicing World Meditation Day and our general practice, what we're part of what we're doing is expanding our scope of attention in order to incorporate the flow of perceptions, the flow of thoughts, the flow of emotions, and the flow of our subjective awareness, and the flow of someone else's thoughts and perceptions and subjective awareness. You know, the studying the self to forget the self means including the so-called so other. So that's at least in part what we're doing in meditation, and this requires effort. In our practice, we are encouraged to keep our eyes open. And I will confess to you that very frequently at the beginning of zazen, I close my eyes and do a little breathing exercise just to get myself in the room, just to arrive. And then open the eyes and be with everything that is occurring light passing, the shadows moving, and so on. We keep the eyes open and that takes effort. Effort is required. And we have in our practice uh, a teaching called the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. And uh, in case you don't know, I will tell you that what those four foundations are. Body and breath is included as one, body and breath. Then another foundation, feelings, another foundation, mind, and another foundation, objects of mind. So those are the four. Effort is required in all of those areas. What exactly is this effort? I would like to speak to you about the effort because it directly influences beneficial action. And I'm going to um, take the risk of giving you a peek inside my own mind, <laughs> how I work with this. It's a, I feel a little vulnerable about doing this, in part because it is um, 
on, on the one hand, I would say hyper-analytical. And this is just part of how my mind works. But it also is very fluid. And I want to express to you that this is how my body and mind, not just my cognition, my body and mind work with these four foundations of mindfulness and the great effort that is required. In the guidelines that Dogen presented us, uh, Dogen goes out of his way to say, students who would like to study the way must not wish for an easy practice. If you seek practice that is easy, you will for certain never reach the ground of truth or dig down to the place of treasure. So this is an encouragement to bring great effort, endeavor to our practice. On the other hand, Dogen continues, and the, uh, the phrase he's using to say when it's extreme effort, he talks about it as breaking bones or crushing marrow. <laughs> That's kind of extreme. So on the other hand, Dogen says, breaking bones or crushing marrow is not necessary. To harmonize the mind is most difficult. Again, the practice of prolonged austerities is not necessary, but to harmonize bodily activities is most difficult and requires effort. So, um, I would like to share my screen with you so that you can track this very, uh, and again, I will say it's hyper-analytical way of talking about effort. So if you are able to take a look at this, I will share it step-by-step step with you. And here we go. I hope you can see that okay. So here are, I've got listed the four foundations of mindfulness. We would feel them to be quite familiar. Much of our literature and liturgy is about these four foundations. They're probably not a surprise to you. So knowing this, I would like to inquire with you, where exactly do we make this effort and how exactly do we make this effort? One of the things that we actually know is that when we make effort in this way, uh, the areas are mutually influencing. So for example, if I calm my body and breath, then my mind follows. When my mind is stirred up with objects of mind, and I want to say what objects of mind are, are memories, analysis, uh, argument, judgment, those are objects of mind. When the objects of mind are very busy, my body and breath is unsettled. So these are mutually influencing and we actually have a say over how this works. <laughs> and I'd like to express to you the way we can make effort. 
So the four endeavors are known as these. We prevent or abandon or cultivate or maintain variety of activity in our life. And that's sideways for a reason. <laughs> I'm going to call that the x-axis and the four foundations, the y-axis. So those two axes are going to cross each other in just a moment. Stay with me here. I told you it was hyper-analytical, but I think you can follow it. So there are times when we want to uh, prevent and abandon certain states of body and breath certain states of mind, feelings, objects of mind. And there are other times when we would like to cultivate and maintain objects of mind and body and breath, for example. How do we know what's what? How do we know when to prevent and abandon or when to cultivate and maintain? Here we go. Sometimes it's exactly wholesome to abandon. Um, sorry, I should say it this way. When there is a um, state of mind that has not yet arisen that would be harmful, it's correct to prevent it. And when it has already arisen, it is wholesome and correct to abandon it. That is, if it is um, not based on a true understanding of the Buddha way, or if it is based on selfishness or self-absorption, it is correct to prevent or abandon it. And we would say that that's a wholesome activity to prevent and abandon. On the other hand, I would say that it's unwholesome to continue to cultivate a state of mind that is harmful, or it is unwholesome to continue to maintain uh, object of mind, or a memory even, an object of mind, uh, that is harmful. Stay with me here. We're going to put another uh, feature into this. When it is a habitual thing, sustained by greed, hate, and delusion, and none of us is greedy, truly, none of us is hatred-filled, but we do have some self-centeredness and some aversion in our lives. We all have a tendency toward delusion or incomplete view. So when the activity is fueled by the habitual, it's actually wholesome to abandon it. When the activity is fueled by the habitual, it's actually unwholesome to cultivate it. I bet you can imagine where I'm going next. There are also aspects of our life in our practice that are sustained by generosity and compassion and wisdom, you know, by these four embracing actions, giving kind speech. This is our practice life. 
and I bet you would imagine where we're going next. When the activity of body and breath and feelings and mind and objects of mind is sustained by practice life, it's actually unwholesome to abandon that and very, very wholesome to cultivate and maintain that. How do we know exactly in which quadrant of these XY axis we find ourselves? I'm going to be complete with the analytical here and stop the screen share, but you might hold that as a uh, schema in which to understand activity. Now I'm going to share my screen in a different way by holding up a picture. <laughs> in this picture, this was an exercise that Edie did with us in priest meeting. She asked us to pick, she brought, she told us to bring colored crayons or colored pencils, some kind of um, paper to work with, and to find a color that would express love, and a different color that might express sadness, and a different color that might express anger, loneliness, creativity. And then she had us draw kind of the outline of a human. She called it a gingerbread man, but I have to call it a gingerbread person. I can't help myself. So on the gingerbread man person, she then asked us to draw a graphic of some kind and where in the body this would show up. So I'm going to show you my picture in just a moment, and I'll tell you a few things about it. And if you want to, you can make it larger on your own screen, but I can also just talk to you about it. So for me, sadness showed up in my belly. That's that band across my belly. For me, anger showed up as that jig-jag purple craziness across my head and across my chest. Mm -hmm. My loneliness shows up in my shoulders. This actually feels very vulnerable to show to you, so I don't know if I can keep it here so long. But it, you might consider working with this as a way of saying, how do I identify what is wholesome, what is unwholesome, and where in my body, how in my body do I actually know that that is true? So now putting these ideas together, if I were to... Uh, notice, for example, that that crazy purple jig-jag thing was happening across my mind and my heart. I recognize that as anger. If I were to persist with that and say, I'm right and you're wrong, the whole constriction continues. This is how I know it's unwholesome. If, however, I take a moment to abandon that, even momentarily, to say, oh, you might have a different point of view to open my mind and heart to the possibility that I actually want to hear your point of view. Mm -hmm. This is an example of cultivating and maintaining the wholesome by being sustained by the practice life.
I hope you find that a helpful example and maybe not overly analytical. I hope you find it helpful as a model. But this body and breath, feelings, mind, objects of mind, is where we make effort. Now, Dogen talking about this says, when you first enter the gate to study the Buddha way, listen to the teacher's instruction and practice as instruction, as instructed, excuse me. When you do that, there is something you know. Dharma turns you and you turn Dharma. This is exactly the activity, entering the Buddha way, opening the gate, at least at first hearing the instructions and practice that way. I'm not trying to tell you that you should rely completely on a teacher. In fact, I'm telling you that you shouldn't. <laughs> Rather, use these instructions as a starting point. These teachings have been handed person to person, warm hand to warm hand, for thousands of years. There is value in them. And yet, you have to find out for yourself. Buddha's in his admonition, uh, while close to death actually, said, you must find out for yourself, don't believe me. And in the wisdom of this practice, we have the guidance to be silent, be still, be awake. We're cultivating here the capacity to be awake to every moment in our body and breath, in our feelings, in our mind, in our perception of our objects of mind. We can know whether we are sustained by generosity and patience. We know because we can feel it in our bodies. This is the training of zazen. So in the examination, we can say, what is this? And what is the basis of this? For me, feeling anger, as was depicted. What is this? Oh, I'm triggered into some other thing in my life. Is that other thing actually happening right now? No, it's not. I'm standing with a trusted person. Now I have abandoned the unwholesome and welcomed in the wholesome, that is, the present moment and non-judgmental awareness. Effort is required. Dharma turns you absolutely, and you turn the Dharma by making this kind of effort. And the truth is that the Dharma will turn independently of you. <laughs> the Dharma doesn't rely upon us. It's not connected in that same way. And yet, the Dharma in your life requires your participation. Be silent, be still, be awake. Be awake to sensations, to perceptions, to formations. And in this way, we're immediately hitting the mark. 